0: Well, do you ever uh, think about food? Some of you might be thinking about food right now. What you had for breakfast, what you're going to have for lunch, but that's not what I mean. I mean, do you ever think about the need for food itself? It's interesting to think about why God created us like this. As humans, we have to find and prepare and eat food regularly or we won't survive. But why did God create us like this? If he could have made humans any way he wanted to. Why didn't he make us like trees? Trees like redwoods, they can grow to huge sizes, they can live for hundreds of years, and they never eat. They absorb everything they need through the air, soil, light. So why didn't God make us like that? Why aren't we powered by photosynthesis? Why this need for constant eating? Is it to teach us dependence on God or dependence on food? Same thing for God. And to make matters more interesting, food plays a huge role in Scripture. Scripture. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but you see food everywhere in the Bible. I mean, it started right there in the garden. Food's in abundance. The first pair can eat anything they want, everything except that one tree. And isn't it interesting that God's first and only command to that first pair had to do with eating and and food? Which also means that man's fall into sin had to do with eating and food. In a way, you can blame every problem in the world on food. It all started with food. And after the fall, God cursed man, but he also cursed the ground such that it became a struggle to get food. By the sweat of your brow, it will produce bread for you. And ever since, man must daily sweat and toil just to obtain food and survive. And so you can probably see what I mean. Food, it plays an, an interesting and intriguing role in scripture. It's there at the beginning of the Bible. It's there at the end of the Bible. You fast forward to Revelation to the last chapter of the Bible and food is there in heaven in the eternal state. There's food. The tree of life shows up. It's back again at the very end. It's bearing 12 kinds of fruit. And just before that, in connection with the second coming of Christ, how is that event commemorated, the second coming? By a feast, by the marriage supper of the Lamb. Throughout all of human history, the closest human fellowship is expressed by eating a meal together. And God chose a meal to express his eternal fellowship With the redeemed. And so, just like this, food takes on a special significance all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Jews had Passover, which was a special meal, and that meal helped them remember and celebrate God delivering them from bondage. And here in the New Testament, Christians have communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, which is also a special meal that helps you remember and celebrate God delivering you from bondage. It just seems like there's something special about food to God. To God, it seems like food is more than just food. Perhaps he created food as a divinely appointed teaching tool. Because through food, we learn of our complete dependence on God, but more than that, much more. And today, from the Gospel of Mark, we're going to learn a little bit more from food. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 if you haven't already. And we're entering a new section in Mark's Gospel, these middle chapters, chapters 6 through 8. And these three chapters come with a very strange motif, and that is food. Just about every story in the next three chapters has something to do with food, and especially bread. It's really strange. I mean, it starts off with chapter 6, the sending out of the 12, and they're not allowed to bring what? Bread. No bread. Right after that, we learn about the death of John the Baptist. And where did that take place? At a great dinner banquet. Following that, Jesus is with the crowds. They're hungry. So what does he do? He multiplies bread for them. After this, Jesus walks on water. And even then, the mention of the loaves comes up. You get to chapter 7, which is huge, because the Pharisees take issue with Jesus over what? Over eating bread with unwashed hands. And that leads Jesus to teach all sorts of things about food, and eventually declares all food clean. Right after that, there's a miracle. And right in that miracle, the gospel power of Jesus is likened to, of all things, bread. And then you get to chapter 8. Jesus once again feeds the multitude by multiplying bread. that's followed by another discourse where he warns the, the, warns the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So, it's like, like I said, almost every single story in these next three chapters has something to do with food and bread. It's a, it's a strange but rather remarkable observation. Now, I don't know, maybe Mark was hungry when he wrote these three chapters, but he wasn't making these stories up, so there actually is a greater significance here. There's something to this, and we see it most clearly in our passage today because of all of these passages, ours right now tops the list when it comes to the significance of food. And we come to a very familiar story. I bet you all know it. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's in every kid's storybook about the Bible. Even non-Christians know about it. And you know what happens. Jesus takes five loaves and he multiplies them to feed a multitude, 5,000 people. It's amazing. But you may not know that there's a lot more to the account than just... Multiplying some bread. Here, once again, we see Jesus using food, but why? What is he teaching? What's he showing us through this miracle? What's the point? Do you know? Have you thought of that before? Why is this so significant? And it is quite significant. Don't be mistaken. Did you know that of all the miracles that Jesus performed, apart from the resurrection, this right here is the only one that shows up in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only one. So, for some reason, this event left such an impression upon them that when they wrote, they had to include this. Why? Why is this miracle, this event, so special, even above all the rest except the resurrection? You know, the Jews in Christ's day, they were notorious for seeing his signs, and they were amazed. But then they never gave it a second thought. They were blown away, but that was it. They never reflected on his works. They never saw beyond his works to the one working them. They never asked the question, well, hey, what does this signify about the one working them? They were supposed to, but they didn't. And that's why many of the Jews, they missed him. Even though he gave them the signs, they missed him. And that still happens today. Many Christians, they read the Bible, they read the words of Jesus and the Gospels, and they think, oh, wow, that's amazing. Then they just move right along. And they never give it a second thought. Do you ever stop and just reflect? What does this mean about who Jesus is? What is the significance of these signs, these works, these miracles that Jesus does? And if you don't stop and think and reflect, you might miss him as well. It even happened to the 12 disciples. What Jesus was trying to teach them through this feeding of the 5,000, it was so significant that he did it again. It's the only time, at the very least, we know explicitly he did pretty much the same miracle twice. He fed the 4,000 at a later time. And even after that, the disciples, they still weren't getting it. They still were missing the boat. They didn't have eyes to see the significance of the sign he was showing them. And we don't want that to be us. The disciples later had their eyes opened to the word by the Spirit. And we too, we want to catch the divinely inspired significance behind this feeding of the 5,000. It's not just your average miracle. This may be the most instructive miracle of them all, the works that Jesus performed. So our goal is to get this this morning. We want to first retell this familiar story. You know it, but perhaps you've overlooked some things. And then secondly, we want to reflect on this familiar story. What is Jesus trying to tell us through his words and his works? What's what's the sign that we're supposed to see? And that's our plan for the morning. And to start, first things first, I'm going to read through and, and retell this story. So we're going to begin with that. Mark chapter 6, to get you back up to speed, I want to turn you back to verse 30 to begin, which we touched on last week. But Mark chapter 6, let's start in verse 30. It reads, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there are many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Here we see the twelve disciples return after that mission where they were sent out to teach and to preach and to heal. And for the first and only time in Mark's gospel, the 12 here are called apostles because they were truly functioning at this time as Christ's representatives. But that little mission is over now. They're coming back to Jesus, probably somewhere near Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. And some time has elapsed. We're not told just how long their mission was, their preaching mission, but some time has elapsed. And now when they come back to Jesus, it's the springtime. John in his gospel tells us it's near Passover, The year is almost surely A.D. 29. But the mention of Passover tells us this, that we are entering right here with the feeding of the 5,000, the last year of Christ's life. This is it. This is his final year. One year from now, at that next Passover, he will be in Jerusalem, and he will be the Passover lamb. He will die one year from now. So this feeding of the 5,000 marks the beginning of his final year. And for now, he's with his disciples The crowds are still everywhere, so much so they can't even eat a meal together. They're just overcome by the the people. The demands are so great that Jesus decides it's time to just get some rest, some reflection. He wants to spend some time alone with his disciples. And you're going to see his final year. It's all about pulling away from the crowds and focusing on the twelve. He wants to do that now. So verse 32, they get in a boat. They're seeking a secluded place, just somewhere away from the crowds, get some rest, some time together, but that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Verse 33, the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. As Jesus and the disciples were skipping town, trying to sneak out. Some people saw them and realized, hey, that, that's Jesus, and they're leaving. And they didn't want that. He was doing more teaching. He was doing some healing at the time. And they wanted some of that. They wanted more signs. They wanted more healing. So they're running after him. And it's like a very slow speed pursuit. It's not exciting. He's moving pretty slow. In the past, other boats were available on the Sea of Galilee. They would hop in. The crowds would hop in the boats and and follow him on water. But here there's no boats at the moment, so they're going on foot. They see from his trajectory, he's, he's heading to that northeastern shore. So they start running on foot to get there first. You get the picture that the young people and the strong people in the crowd, they just start running. They're turning into a race. You know, Can we get there first, running around the shore? And as they're running, it's like they're screaming to every villager and passerby, come with us and we're going to see Jesus. You have to remember, in that time, you walked and you ran everywhere miles, hundreds of miles. It was just how you got from A to B. So a little five-mile jaunt around the lake is not a big deal for them. And on water, it would would be a couple, two, three-mile journey, straight shot. But if the wind is against you, you're going to be moving pretty slow. And I speak from experience when it comes to that. And back in 2008, I was the speaker at a summer junior camp, or a high school camp, actually. A retreat up at Lake Almanor, and on one of the breaks, had a lot of free time, so I decided I'm going to kayak across the lake. And I like kayaking, it's really fun to me, and I, it didn't look that far. But looks can be deceiving. I started paddling out, and it took forever. The wind was against me, and it felt like I wasn't even moving. And I finally reached the other side, I was pretty tired, and I just rested for a little bit and it was already getting late, so I had to go back to the other side. But the wind was behind me, and I was flying, it was not a big deal. But when I got back, I looked on the map. Like, how how far was this? And I was shocked to find that it was three miles each way. And I had no idea, and it kind of makes sense because it took so long. But I could fully understand when the wind is against you, even a short distance. Someone could have easily ran around the lake and beat me to the other side. It was that slow going. And that's what that's what people did with Jesus. They were running along the shore. They're passing through dozens of villages. They're People are excited, like, what what are they going to see? Crowds attract more crowds. They're shouting, telling everyone, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to the northern shore. It's word of mouth. It's spreading like wildfire. Pretty soon you have hundreds of people just streaming to that northern shore. There's no city there. But everyone wanted another chance to see Jesus in action, maybe get healed. There's still a lot of excitement around him. And throughout the day, hundreds of people would keep streaming in. And by the time Jesus and the disciples land, there's already a a good crowd formed. There are already some people who made it there first. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, first off, as they get closer to shore and they see people already there, what do you think the disciples are thinking? Because this was supposed to be their little mini vacation. This was supposed to be their time for rest and reflection. And they see people there and they realize that's not going to happen. It's like you're on a a nice vacation in Hawaii, just relaxing. You get that call from work and you have to take the call. It's like, there goes your vacation. That's what they're thinking. They're probably bummed out and frustrated by the turn of events. Like, ah, here we go again. The crowd is back. How do you think Jesus reacts to the crowd when he sees it? get angry? Does he get frustrated? Is it supposed to be time for him to rest as well? But he doesn't. He's not upset because he's moved to, what does it say? Compassion. He feels compassion for the people. And this word, it's only used of Jesus in the New Testament. And it speaks of this real gut level pity and sympathy, even love you feel for others. And why was Jesus so moved? It's because the people are just standing there. They're waiting for him desperately. They look like sheep without a shepherd. It's like they're lost. They're helpless. You know, that's probably what they look like from a distance out at sea. Little white dots on the green hillside. They probably look like sheep. And they, like sheep without a shepherd, were lost. And sheep, as you know, they're unbelievably dependent animals. They can't find food on their own. They can't find water on their own. They can't defend themselves. They get lost. They become prey for wolves. It's a miracle they survive, which really is probably only due to their shepherd. Without a shepherd, they get lost. They're they're lost animals. And that's what these Jews were at the time. And really when he says this, it's an indictment on the leaders of Israel. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Israel, these Jews, they had plenty of priests and scribes and lawyers, and teachers, but they didn't have any shepherds. All these people weren't shepherding the people of Israel. Rather, they were devouring the flock. Israel's leaders were breaking the backs of the people with the burden of their religion. Rather than meeting the people's true spiritual needs, there were no shepherds. One commentator aptly describes their shepherdless state, saying, quote, the people had questions but no answers, distress but no relief, Anguish, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. Sin, but no forgiveness. End quote. They had a a multitude of leaders, but no shepherds and no help. And that's why Jesus feels compassionate regarding them. They're so lost, so clueless, so helpless. They're standing there and they don't know anything. So he will be their guide. He's tired. He needs rest. But there's the sheep, and he will be their shepherd. He lands, he goes up the hill, John tells us. He waits for the full crowd to form, because people are still coming in. He performs some healing, Luke tells us, on the mountain. And then he teaches. The shepherd starts to feed his sheep. He tells them about the good news of God's coming kingdom over the course of the afternoon. And we get to verse 35. It says, When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. We already know it was springtime, which means the sun sets a little early. This was already early afternoon or evening, so it's probably 3 or 4 o'clock. The time's running out. And the disciples, they present a very reasonable request. This, this makes sense. Because remember, Jesus wanted to go to a desolate place. There's no market. There's no store or restaurant. This is the wilderness. So they're saying, you better send the crowd away. Otherwise, they're going to starve. There's nothing here for them to eat. And you better do it soon because it'll be dark in a couple hours. And they need time to get back to all the villages and their towns. It sounds totally reasonable. That's a very reasonable request. John and his gospel and the parallel account gives us a little more insight. We learn that earlier that day, they got off the boat, Jesus asked Philip, one of the twelve, a a very peculiar question. He saw the vast crowd forming and Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Okay, so you see the crowd, you know, we're going to have to feed them later. Where are we going to get the bread? Just threw that out to Philip, that's all. Jesus knew what he was going to do. John tells us, and he's preparing. He's setting up the disciples for a test. This is a test for them. How are they going to respond? What will they suggest? How are they going to feed the people? And this question must have weighed on Philip. He also must have told the other disciples, because here now we see their collective response. How are they going to feed the crowd? Where are they going to buy bread? And their answer, they come to Jesus, and their answer is, we're not. We can't. But there That is no way. The only solution is to send them away so that they can buy bread themselves. That's, that's all we can do. And they better go quick before it gets dark. That's their response. Jesus is not too happy with their response. Verse 37. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Here Jesus emphatically rejects their proposal. no, that's not going to do. The crowd doesn't need to go away. You guys give them something to eat. You feed them. And when you realize how big the crowd was, how actually massive this crowd was, you you see how incredulous this response of Jesus is. The fact that he's telling them to feed the crowd, we're not talking like five or six people, a hundred people. 200 people. All four Gospels mention how many were present? 5,000. But not just 5,000. It says 5,000 men. And that word for men is very specific to the male gender in the Greek, which means there were more there. Women and children are not counted in that 5,000. And Matthew tells us that explicitly, that women and children weren't counted in that specific number. So what does this mean? How many people are really there? We don't know for sure, but if each man had a wife or a mother or a sister, and then they had some kids present, I mean, we're talking easily 10,000, 15,000, maybe more. This, this could have potentially been a massive, massive crowd, like a small city. So just imagine, you're looking out at a stadium of 15,000 people, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, you need to feed them. You've got to feed these people. What are you going to do? You would think that's just ridiculous. I can't feed these people. How do you think I can buy food for all these people? Where do you buy food for all these people? It's like a nightmare. So the disciples say back, shall shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? This is Philip talking again, says John. Because he did the calculations. When Jesus asked him that question, he started crunching some numbers like, so where are we going to buy bread? How much do we even need? And he's doing some number crunching, and he comes up with 200 denarii. One denarius—that's an entire day's wage back then for a worker. So it's a lot of money, and that's just for a meager rationing of bread. So they're asking, "Do you want us to spend all that money on food for the people?" And then, where are we even going to get the money? Remember, on their previous mission, he said, "Don't take any bread and don't take any money." They're not—they're not rich. They don't have anything. So where to get the money? And even if they did. Where are they going to buy the food? This is the wilderness. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no market around. There's nowhere to go. So you can tell they're exasperated. And again, that's totally reasonable to us. You would be too. This is a crazy request. It's an impossible request. What could they do? Jesus telling them, you feed them. But it wasn't a request. It was a test Jesus wanted them, realizing they couldn't do anything, to come to him, to depend on him for his power. He had already given them a taste of his power in their mission to teach, preach, and heal. So why won't they rely on him now? There is no answer to them feeding the crowd. It's true, except for Jesus. They left out that little X factor. You have Jesus. Go to him. They don't. Jesus responds instead, verse 38. He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go, look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Once again, John, writing later, he gives us more details, which is cool to see all the extra details. And we learn that the disciples, they went to the crowds. Like he said, they were looking around. Who, Who has bread? What do we got? To the nearby people. And they didn't find anything. They didn't find very much. Most of these people left in a hurry to go find Jesus by the northern shore. But there was one boy, Mark tells us, just a little kid, and he packed a lunch that day. And his lunch was five loaves and two fish. That's all he had. That word loaves, though, a me- little misleading. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of a loaf of bread. It's not what it is. The word loaf, it's, more, it's something smaller, more like a little biscuit. It's, you, five of them would be a lunch. Uh, And also the fish, they're not big either. These are a couple of small salted fish from the lake. This was their typical lunch. And it's it's enough for a little boy. That's why he had it. It's not a massive meal here. It's five loaves, two bread, or two fish. It's not a lot. But they took it. They took it anyway. They took the lunch from the kid. And they brought it to Jesus. And don't feel bad, though. He's going to do something pretty miraculous with it. Look at verse 39. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Already makes you pause. Like, wait, Jesus, what are you doing? Didn't you hear we only have like a small meal of five loaves, two fish? Like, why are you making them sit down for a meal? We don't have enough food. The disciples are probably confused, but they obey. They do obey and they organize the crowd, put them into groups. And then comes something truly marvelous, verse 41. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. It was a strict custom among the Jews that they would pray and thank God before every meal. And Jesus does that. He prays. He thanks God, perhaps praying for power. Some people might be confused watching Jesus pray. Hey, why is he praying? He just took that kid's lunch. What's he still thankful for? But he's about to give that lunch back and then some. And after praying, he starts, starts breaking. Takes these little biscuits, starts breaking them in half, breaking them in quarters, splitting the loaves. He's dividing the fish. And he, he doesn't stop. He just keeps going. They bring little baskets before him and he starts filling them up. And, and one after another, somehow they just they keep filling up. And when one gets full, one of the twelve comes, grabs a basket, becomes an impromptu waiter, goes into the crowd and starts handing them out. He's like, what do you want? Here you go. Have as much as you want. And by the time he gets back to Jesus, there's another basket standing there just waiting for him. And you're thinking, well, where's this coming from? What's going on? Jesus is multiplying the bread and the fish. It's, it's coming from where? It's coming from nowhere. It's coming from creation. This food is literally being created on the spot. And the mechanics of this miracle are left a mystery to us. We don't know exactly what happened. Did, did the broken bread regenerate? Did a crumb just grow up into a loaf? Did the fish just pop out of nowhere? We, we don't know. All we know is this. He started with five loaves. And two little fish. And he kept cranking them out until there was enough for everyone to eat to their full. Thousands and thousands of loaves and fish went out. Enough for everyone. And you think it tasted good? I'm pretty sure it tasted good. This was perfect food. It's created by the Creator Himself. These were perfect fish. They never swam a day in their life. But he created them on the spot, fully mature, perfect for eating. The bread wasn't rotten. It wasn't stale. It wasn't too hard, too soft. It was perfect food. How did it taste? I I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was good. And we do know it was satisfying. Verse 42, it says, They all ate and were satisfied. That's all 5, 10, 15,000 people. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up. 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. In case you didn't know, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Back in verse 42, that word satisfied means they were more or less gorged. They were stuffed. There's a lot of food to go around. You could have as much as you wanted. And, and look, when there's free food, you're going to eat till you're full. You're, gonna, you're just going to stuff yourself. And that's what happened. And they, everyone ate so much, and there was even enough for leftovers. How much leftovers were there? There's always leftovers at a big meal, right? Twelve baskets. Now, when you're thinking baskets, don't think like a laundry basket. More like the lid to a laundry basket. It's what they had, a small wicker basket for carrying personal daily supplies and bread. And how many are left over? What do you know? Twelve. Why twelve? Well, for one of the reasons was that there would be one for each of the disciples. This was a teaching opportunity for them. They had their share as well. They were provided for. They weren't left out either. Jesus perfectly and precisely created the right amount of food to ensure everyone was full, and twelve baskets exactly, no more, no less, no less were left over for the twelve. And He is showing them, especially His disciples, that He's their perfect provider. He is the provider of their every need. There's no need. That goes beyond his power. It really is amazing. It's one of Christ's most amazing and significant works. The power of creation just right there in his hands. How? We, we don't know. But it's just the power of the creator just right there in his hands. What's also amazing is what happens next. Mark doesn't tell us, but again, John, he tells us what happens next. We learn that the people, they knew something was up. And actually they were blown away by the sign he gave they understood this was a sign miracle and they were blown away so much so that in John chapter 6 verse 15 it says that after this the people wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king do you know that it's John chapter 6 verse 15 after this miracle this event in particular they wanted to come and make him their king and you might be thinking that's great isn't that great? The disciples were like, hey, this is good stuff. Jesus, isn't this what you always wanted? You wanted them to recognize you as king. So here you are. You're king. Isn't this good news? Not so much. Because the people were looking for a different kind of king. These were Galileans, notorious for hating Rome. They wanted freedom from Rome more than anyone. And they just thought Jesus was their ticket to political freedom. And better yet, he gave them free food. That is a recipe for success for any leader. Just give the people bread. But they still weren't seeing Jesus for who he really was. They were missing the actual significance of the miracle. They understood this is a miracle. There's a sign. But they read the sign wrong. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves the crowd. He withdraws from the crowd. He won't have it. He will not be the king that they are looking for. After this, he goes away to be alone. leaves them behind. What's interesting, though, is the next day, the very next day, he goes back to Capernaum, not too far. The crowd, it's pretty much there. They're back again. The, most of the same people are back in Capernaum. They see Jesus. They come up to him. And what do they want? Breakfast. <laughs> they want breakfast. The, last night, he gave them basically dinner. Now they want breakfast. They want more miracles they want more bread. And this time, what does Jesus do? He does not provide. doesn't give them anything. No bread, no fish, nothing. He's not there to give them a limitless supply of physical food. But he is there to give them a limitless supply of spiritual food. And so he teaches. And what he says, I've got something to offer you. It's myself you want some bread, I am the bread of life. Come to me and you will live. He teaches, and and you know what they say to that? They say, no. They don't want that. They didn't like what he had to say. They They want real bread. And amazingly, by the end of that day, the same group of people, those who had eaten their fill of the loaves the day before, they walk away. They want nothing more to do with Jesus. They leave them. The excitement is gone. The free bread is gone. They're gone. And it looks like he's not going to be the king they wanted after all. They missed the significance of the sign of the bread. And so they missed Jesus. And here's another reason. You know, miracles don't make people believe. They'll reject all sorts of miracles. But it does make us wonder, what did they get wrong? What, what were they missing? How did they read the sign wrong? What was Jesus trying to tell the people through this sign? And it was a sign. What's it pointing to? I don't want to miss it. I don't want to be left in the dark about the significance and the sign of the bread. So what is it? What is the message of the loaves? Well, there are several impactful truths that stem from this event. want to save some time at the end because we need to see what's really going on behind the scenes here. And so let's cover that now. I want to look at four messages Jesus sends from the feeding of the 5,000. Just briefly, but four messages Jesus is sending your way from this sign, from the feeding of the 5,000. First message is this. Number one, Jesus is telling you he is God. Jesus is telling you, He is God. This is an undeniable aspect of this sign. This is not your average miracle. And granted, they're all special. That's why we call them miracles. They're not supposed to happen. They they break the rules. They're supposed to be impossible. But not for God. No man wields the power of God like this. But Jesus is not just a man. He's the Son of God. And through this miracle... He's displaying the power that He has as God and Creator. Jesus is the Creator. Did you know that? Did you know that God the Son is the one who created everything? He is the direct means of creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, Speaking of Christ, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Christ was the agent of creation. Liberal theologians try and explain away all of Christ's miracles because they don't believe in the supernatural. Some have actually suggested that to explain the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus earlier deviously put a bunch of fish and bread in a cave nearby cave and when the crowd came he had his disciples he was wearing a long robe his disciples were feeding bread to him from the back of his robe and he had long sleeves and so it looked like they were coming from nowhere it's like I'm a magician with long sleeves and so the crowd thought it was a miracle really it was just a hoax but such explanations are merely the attempts of darkened minds trying to explain away a god who makes them feel very uncomfortable and very condemned There really is no denying the truth displayed in the miracle that Jesus is God. I've referenced John a lot, the Gospel of John. How does he start his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, speaking of the second member of the Trinity. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That still happens today. Jesus he's still the Word. He's still the light. still shines in the darkness. But plenty of people still do not comprehend it. Many today living in the darkness do not accept darkness. Jesus, But this we proclaim, that He is the Son of God, and you must believe in Him rightly to be saved. He's telling you from this miracle, He is God. Now we could stop here, because really, what's more significant than that? That's the top of the mountain, that He is not just the Son of David, but the Son of God. But there is more Jesus is trying to tell us through this feeding of the 5,000. So I want us to keep going a little bit. There's more significance to see. Now we have a second message Jesus is sending you. Number two, Jesus is telling you he is Moses. He's telling you he is Moses. You're probably thinking, what? Like he's back from the dead? Well, no, not literally. Jesus is not Moses reincarnate. But he is on purpose like a second Moses. A greater Moses who leads his people in a second exodus. A greater exodus. And I'm not just spiritualizing, making this up. There are enough actual clues and breadcrumbs in our text in Mark to help us make this internal intended connection. And think about this. First off, remember, Moses had the same problem. Right after the exodus, the people had no food. They started complaining that we have no bread. And Moses, their shepherd, and he was a shepherd earlier in his life, he was faced with this gargantuan problem of feeding the people. And we're not talking 5,000 men. We're talking 600,000 men, add women and children. We're like 2 million. And they're complaining, we have nothing to eat. We're in the wilderness, and we're starving to death. So what does God do? God provides for his people. Bread called manna straight out of heaven. Just creates it from nowhere. And there it is. Enough for everyone. Special delivery. Enough so they can be full. Later, the same people complain they don't have any meat. So God promises He will give them meat for an entire month. But even Moses doubts. He's like, God, where are you going to get the meat from? Shall we slaughter all of our herds? There's not even enough fish in the sea To get enough meat to feed this people. That's what he says. And God says back to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Again, the Lord provides meat from heaven, in the form of quail. God provides for his people, even in the wilderness. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving the people bread from heaven, straight out of heaven's hands, like the manna out of nowhere. And it fully satisfies their needs, gives them everything that they need. Furthermore, we see the way in which Jesus makes the people sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. is very reminiscent of how God organized the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle in the wilderness during the Exodus. We have the same connection with Passover, Exodus, right after Passover here, same thing. And Jesus even takes a line from Moses himself. There's this little refrain. You see it throughout the Old Testament, but it goes back to Moses. Where Moses himself, right at that time in the Exodus, prayed that God would appoint a new leader for the people after him so that the people would not be like sheep without a shepherd. That goes back to Moses. He said that. God answered that prayer, by the way. He appointed a new leader after Moses. Remember that guy's name? Who took over after Moses? joshua which in hebrew it's the equivalent of the name jesus and that's who jesus is he is the one the great prophet who's coming to the world predicted by moses and he acts like a second moses a greater moses and is leading god's people on a second exodus and we're not talking slavery from egypt we're talking slavery to sin He is freeing humanity from slavery to sin. He's feeding them in the wilderness and he's preparing them for the promised land. By performing this work, Jesus is declaring that he is the long-awaited one who will bring God's saving grace and deliver his people from bondage. If you want to be saved and delivered from that bondage, you must go to him. He must be your deliverer. He's the only one who can deliver you from sin's power and penalty. He's the only one who can lead you through the wilderness and into that final promised land. Now speaking of leading, this leads to a third message Jesus has for you from this miracle. Number three, Jesus is telling you he is David. You can probably see where I'm going with this one now, but number three, he's telling you he is David. Again, not literally. He's not David reincarnate. But he is, once again, on purpose, like a second David, a son of David, a greater David. And who was David? Was he a shepherd? Was he a king? Was he a shepherd king? God promised to David that he would have a descendant, a special seed, who would rise up after him, sit on his throne, rule the nations, bring in everlasting peace and righteousness. And shepherd God's people. And that's Jesus. He is the seed. The son of David. That perfect shepherd king. And this is prophetic. Think back to Ezekiel 34. God himself in that passage. He first pronounced judgment on Israel. And their leaders. Because they were like wicked shepherds. And the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And so first he indicts. Their current leaders, much like Jesus did in his day. These people, they don't have any shepherds. But then after that, in Ezekiel, God promises to provide a shepherd for his own people. And just, who's that guy going to be? Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. God says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. One more time, that's Jesus. He is the servant like David, a king, a shepherd. And as a good shepherd, what does he do? Feeds the sheep, he leads them to green pastures, he tends to their needs. Mark 6, we see him in action. That's exactly what he does. He's gathering his flock. He's sitting them down on green grass. He's tending to their needs, healing the broken ones, feeding the hungry ones. And most of all, he gives them himself. Like Jesus said later in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And he he will even go the distance to lay down his life for the sheep. Just think about that. What kind of king, what kind of ruler would die for just a bunch of sheep by the side of the road, it's a flock of sheep. Yet this king dies for us, for God's people. That is a good shepherd. Lastly, number four, Jesus is telling you he is provider. We'll finish with this: he's telling you he is provider. Or as as known in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord provides. That's once again Jesus. He is provider. He made everything. He made you. So do you think you have needs that are outside his reach? Like God said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Jesus displayed his unlimited power that evening by doing the impossible. He called bread and fish into existence from nothing, just like he did at creation, in order to provide for his sheep. So do you think he won't provide for you what you really need? Not talking a million bucks, but what you really need. Jesus still provides. There's no more manna from heaven. No more bread, no more fish coming out of nowhere. But you can have all the spiritual food you need, all of it you want. You know, you can have the bread of life. It's yours. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. You will receive forgiveness of sins, new birth, eternal life. All you have to do is eat the bread. And Jesus has it. He's got it. It's free. Let's go to him for the bread of life. But more than that, not only does Jesus provide the bread of life, he is the bread of life. I've been referencing it enough. It's time for you just to turn to John chapter 6. We'll, we'll end at John 6. You've got to see it for yourself. The parallel passage recording much of the same events, but we see him actually teach The day after, John chapter 6. This is the morning after he feeds the 5,000. Most of those same people are gathered while he teaches them. They want more bread, but I I just want you to see this little section of how he he responds to them and what he says. John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Just before that, he said, do the work for the bread which endures to eternal life. So they're like, okay, what's that work? What do we have to do? And what does he said? Verse What was he say? Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe. That's it. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So they understood that he was talking about him that you may believe in him. They understood that. So like, why should we believe in you? What work do you do? What sign do you do? It's like, hello, he just multiplied 5,000 breads. It's like they don't understand. And it's probably making them crazy, but they continue and they say, verse 31, look at the connection again. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What sign do they point to? From their ancestors. Look how God gave us this miraculous bread in the wilderness out of nowhere. They're so missing the boat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Hey, not a bad bad question. Maybe their first good question. But then verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Stop there for a second. What's he saying? He's saying he's the provider. And what does he provide? He provides himself. He provides salvation. Salvation for us, it's impossible. You can't save yourself. To save yourself is more impossible than you multiplying bread. You can't do it. For you to be saved, you are justly condemned for your guilt. You and I bear up the weight of our sins, and and we, we face judgment justly. We can't do anything about that. We can't save ourselves. If we are to be saved, we need a perfect substitute sacrifice, and we don't have that. But Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Jesus is that perfect substitute sacrifice. Just like the Lord provided the ram in place of Isaac. So here is Christ in place of us to die on the cross. To be saved, you must go to him. Just real quick, look what he says down in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. He's not talking about cannibalism. And he's not even talking about communion. No, not yet. What is he talking about? Eating and drinking. That's what we must do to live. They are necessary for physical life. And he's saying, well, what do you know? Eating and drinking are necessary... Or spiritual life as well. It's just that what are you going to eat? You must spiritually consume Christ. You must take Him in by faith, especially His death on the cross, where His body was broken for you like bread, and His blood spilled for you like wine. Later, He would institute the Lord's Supper. Hey, what do you know? Another meal. And that would be a special meal to commemorate the same thing, what he's talking about here. You're not saved by communion, but in it you are remembering that atoning death where he provided that perfect substitute for you through his body, through his blood on the cross. So the question we're forced to ask almost after every episode in the Gospels is, who is this? Who is Jesus? And how do you respond? The question was before them, they even understood he was talking about himself. Who is he? Do you see the sign and where it's pointing as he multiplies these loaves and fish? Who is he? He is God, the great creator. He's Moses, the great prophet deliverer. He's David, the great shepherd king. And he's the provider, the great bread of life. And to be saved, you must believe in him. We're not talking some intellectual knowledge Rather, it's like eating. You have to consume Him. You take Him in. Trust Him. Abide in Him. Live off of Him. Embrace Him. Rejoice in Him. Need Him. Desire Him. And more. That's what we mean by faith in Christ. Not just getting the right answer, but you take Him in. Then you will live. You keep reading John. Do it on your own. John chapter 6. You learn, like I said, not everyone believed that afternoon verse 66 as a result of this many of many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore he told them the truth he told them the sign and what it meant but they didn't want it and a lot of people today they still they don't want it they don't want to give up their sin to take freely from the bread of life but what about you how do you respond True disciples are known and still known by following Jesus to the end, never forsaking the bread of life, but consuming him to live. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, you are, and we confess, the, the true bread of life. We thank you as we remember your works, the works of your hand, not just your miracles, but that greatest miracle, the greatest work, your death and resurrection. On the cross, you died for our sins. You paid the penalty for all of our transgressions. You wiped the dead away. And then you rose victoriously, the greatest sign of them all, indicating who you really are, the God-man, the answer to death. And we look to you now for life. We thank you for your grace upon grace that you even offer such a, a gift to your, to your servants. We are like sheep. You are the king. And what king would ever die for a, a bunch of sheep? Yet you show your great love in this, that you have died for us, and risen, and offer us eternal life with you. It is the most marvelous gift in the world. I pray we all dwell in that fact, accept it, and and turn to you. You offer life without cost, bread, and and spiritual drink to the fullest. And may we consume you all as and live. I pray everyone here believes in you, and not just the simple intellectual assent, but has a real desire and passion and hunger for the Lord, that they seek to consume you daily, that they abide in you and pursue you always. That is faith, and through that we are made new and made alive. We again thank you, we marvel at you, we recognize you, we see the sign and we believe, and we pray always for your blessing upon us, Lord, but we bless your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.